0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to episode number 39 of Sports Medicine on Tap. I'm Jason Kopeck coming at you once again from Neck of the Woods Brewing Company, another packed house, even though we switched it up and we're here on a Wednesday night. Dr. Frey, how you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Jason. How about you, buddy?
0: Doing good. We uh, we've centered this podcast around injuries in the moment right. and what it takes an athlete to return to sport. You know, Achilles injuries, ACL injuries, things like that. But we have a, a little bit of a different topic for us tonight, right? A
1: little bit of a curveball on from the kind of athletic perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, pretty excited about tonight's show.
0: And w- what are we going to be talking about?
1: So, um, I, first, I want to introduce our our, our, our guest, right? And so, our guest is a local guy, uh, graduated from Highland Park High School, right right in this area. Uh, then went to uh, Cornell for undergraduate. And after that, went to Columbia up in New York for a medical school. He did his residency at, at, the, at Rochester URI before doing a fellowship in adult reconstruction out at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Um, kind of the cornerstone of our group, right? Yeah. Like like, like the, the main guy, one of the founding fathers, and has and sort of built a, a very large group yeah. with, a, with, with a lot of docs and, and on, really on, on his shoulders in a lot of ways. He's been named the top doctor in Philadelphia um, since 2010, every single year. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Chofet to the show, Scott Chofet. And we're going to talk about some like, joints and, and total joints, or, or knee and partial knee replacements, and how that impacts athletics overall. Scott, you want to say hello.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. It's uh, always been one of my goals doing joint replacements and operating older people to join the sports guys with the younger people <laughs> and, and try to pitch in a little bit on that. So And uh, joints have moved more into the outpatient realm as sure. sports has, so we've always been envious of you guys. So I'm really happy to be here and uh, talk a little bit about how sports injuries really interact with the joint replacement world. And they are getting closer and closer together, especially as our population gets older and older and
1: there's two sides to that coin right like how sports injuries can sometimes lead you down this road towards needing joint replacement and then the other side of it how the joint replacement may be able to get you back to a certain level of sports that you may want to participate in
2: absolutely It, it used to be that you know getting just doing joint replacement is just able to get you to walk again right but as we have new technologies and new techniques and changes in how we fix them and And the different bearing surfaces that we can now utilize we're able to get people to do more and more and return more and more to sports at all different levels so not just you know your recreational sports but more of higher activities and and we can touch on that the other part is is that our patient population has gotten younger and younger as you've mentioned as people are playing a lot more sports in the younger ages we're seeing a lot more acl injuries and reconstructions and meniscectomies and dislocated patellas, et cetera. All these things can lead to arthritis at a younger age. So at the same time, our age population is dropping. And the demands are increasing. So we can touch upon that on how technology has changed and what we are able to do to get people back to where they are. But still, whether we can get them back to the holy grail of getting back to, you know, being a superstar professional athlete, I think we're still a ways away from that.
0: We're on episode 39, as we mentioned, and I got to admit, this is probably the first guest that I've been a bit intimidated by. (laughs) I'm not that big, by the way, just for your guests out there. Touch a little bit on
2: your involvement with Recon. So, so, Recon's been around for a very long time. Reconstructive Orthopedics is, is our group. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I was not the first. I was probably one of the early partners. Uh, and I joined the group in 1990. And, and uh, the core group was five of us. And over time, it dwindled down to three. We were actually at three for a while with 17 employees. And now we're, I think, like 26 docs and 300 employees. So,
1: I, I think it's bigger than that. We've,
2: re, we've regrown. Yeah. But the, the goal was always um, to create a group that you know, was, was very high level, uh, sort of like you would find in the major cities in a community such you know in the suburbs of New Jersey, right. why can't we recreate what they would have in Philadelphia or New York? So we hired only the, the best people, uh, people who were fellowship trained, in, uh, which is that extra year of training outside of uh, the regular orthopedics, and have everybody specialize and follow all the basic sciences, and also to get a group of people together who are basically good guys, right? Mm-hmm. Who like working together, and that model has really been successful, and you know we've survived, you know my lifetime now 33 years here with the group, so and still going strong. So um, you know to be able to supply that you know that high quality orthopedics to people around um, at all levels, spine, sports, joints, um, and uh, and to deliver that care into the local community at a level so people do not have to travel to Philadelphia or New York,
0: you know that's really been successful, and we've, we've built a strong model here. Over the duration of this podcast, we brought in a lot of different of the recon physicians, Doctor Frey, Doctor Bernardino, Doctor Brandt, Doctor Jennings, Jim you know. Filippo, Doctor yeah. Murray. Like like and, and this goes on. One of the things I've always really been interested in is at what point of their of their background did they s- decide to specialize? And I think Doctor Frey, you and I have talked about this probably off air, but you know what led you to want to be the hand surgeon but would you mind talking about like at what point y- you decided that like joint replacements is what you wanted to get into yeah that's a very
2: great question because i actually applied to both sports <laughs> fellowships and joint fellowships simultaneously oh, yeah. yeah so i was really torn <laughs> right. mm-hmm. when i finished uh, my orthopedic i was finished my orthopedic residencies so we have to decide in the fourth year well, we went, i loved arthroscopies and as a matter of fact as i did more and more joints it was the very last thing i gave up was doing arthroscopies because it's just, it's such an enjoyable operation, right. it really is. <laughs> so, um, but I had to give that up eventually. And then uh, just looking at the future, you know, I was looking at joint replacement and I was trying to think of, of where there was gonna be the most growth and the most change. And I think I picked the right one mm-hmm. at that point in that with the population getting older sure. and with more joint replacements being necessary and, and knowing where we were, and, you know, I wanted to do outpatient things like all the sports stuff and get people to go home. And yet we were so far from that in joint replacement. That's sort of the path I got driven to because that's what I wanted to bring to joint replacement. Right. All that stuff in sports medicine that you guys are so familiar with that we haven't had for years.
1: Now things you know, are changing.
2: And now things are changing. Now we're getting very close to that. We're doing outpatient joint replacement. You know, we have robotic assisted surgery patients are going home you know the same day and you know really things have, have progressed to where you know we don't have people in the hospital that much anymore you know if people stay overnight that's a long time
0: right yeah when a patient comes to you in, in the ortho office how are they presenting to you so most of the time in my
2: practice um, I'm seeing them uh, I usually get them further down the line mm-hmm. of of the arthritis treatment you know a lot of times people know they've had arthritis They've been through certain treatments, and, um, and they come in looking for a joint replacement. So mm-hmm. I'm sort of a, a tertiary referral where okay. they're getting ready to go. Right. And then they come in, and they think they're ready to get their joint replaced. And yet, in my view, they're not quite ready to get mm-hmm. their joint replaced. And, and the way I, I liken this is to understand we haven't really got into it too much, mm-hmm. but what a joint replacement really does is it replaces the lining of the joint. Yeah. You know, if We're gonna talk about a knee, we don't actually replace the knee, we replace the liner of the knee because the cartilage is all worn out. When we do a hip, we replace the ball and socket. But when we do a knee, we just basically replace the liner of the knee. And and I liken that to my patients, it's sort of like putting a new tire on the car. And I tell them, okay, your knees are your front tires and your hips are your back tires and you're driving around these four tires all day and you got a flat tire, right? And you're coming to me because you're ready to get a new tire on that car because some other doctor told you you're ready for it. And then I explain to them that the tires aren't the only thing to keep the car running, right? Like the motor of the car is really important, right? And the motor of the person is their muscles. And a lot of these patients come in after two years of getting injections and favoring the knee and not using it and leaving it alone. They lose all their strength. So they're basically a car now with a dead engine and a flat tire, which is a big problem. And then sometimes they put an extra 10 or 20 pounds on themselves because mm-hmm. they're not exercising or doing anything, or it's COVID or it's COVID. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and every 10 pounds in your body puts 70 on that joint. Yeah. So that's like loading up the trunk with an extra 200 pounds of stuff. Right. And I tell them if I'm going to put a new tire in that car and I'm the new mechanic and you got a dead engine and you're pulling a trailer around the stuff, the chances you're going to get out of my shop and go home is pretty small. Mm-hmm. So we have to fix some of those things. And so a lot of what I do is re-engaging the patient in the process of treating themselves, right? Right. Instead Mm -hmm. of counting on somebody to make them better, get them to start to fix the things that they need to do so that when I do put the new tire on the car, right, it's got a fully working engine, the trunk is slimmed down, and that car can run. And that basically is what gets them out of the hospital and gets them home. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that has really changed in that self-engagement with the patients not, you know that there's something wrong with therapy but it's getting them to continue to do that right. and fix that stuff themselves and so that's been a that's been a really big change for me
0: how did they get to the point of having this advanced arthritis where they've been seeing other other physicians and like you said you were the tertiary referral is it poor mechanics is it not taking care of themselves at an earlier age yeah combination so that's of everything.
2: excellent question
0: you know so a lot of it is sort of post-traumatic mm-hmm. a lot of people
2: you know, you look at them, and one knee's bad, and the other one isn't. You right. find out they tore their meniscus 20 years ago, and they had it removed. They had an injury playing football, mm-hmm. and, and then you get the sports people, guys. I the see sports guys. <laughs> You're, uh, you know, but they would have had, you know, without that, they wouldn't have made it the other 20 right. years. Right. But then the other ones come in with bilateral; both knees are bad, and you know they they're born with either some bow leg or a knock knee deformity. Um, yeah. There's some congenital. They find out their family and parents have had it. So, right. so a lot of it is is their genetics and. Mm-hmm we're living a long time as humans, right? 60, 70, 80. So some of it is natural wear and tear. And those are people usually both joints are bad or their hips and their knees go bad. And then you get the people just one knee is bad because they had multiple injuries to it and surgeries and things to try to
0: fix it. But ultimately, it affected the mechanics and they they wear out the lining. And Mm -hmm. we have to fix them. And then I know you said that you're not always the one seeing them in the beginning, but how do they present in terms of signs and symptoms? And that, and that's something like as an athletic trainer, we're usually big on like a, a consistency. I mean, is that, is that clicking locking that we see mm-hmm. with the meniscus, right. is it generalized pain yeah. it specific to an area?
2: So it's a great point because we see a lot of people with joint pain, yeah. knee pain mm-hmm. and knee pain specifically we'll talk about. So when it's from arthritis and you go back to the, to the car analogy, Whenever that car is driving, you know the tire is flat. When the car's in the garage, you don't, right? Mm-hmm. So these people then usually have symptoms when they're walking, when they're going upstairs, when they're active, but not so bad when they're sitting and laying down, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of people also have, you know, that have back problems that may have leg pain as well, that's more bothers them when they're sitting and laying down and not so much when they're walking. Mm-hmm. So we kind of try to discern that when I see patients, you know, what's mm-hmm. the cause of their symptoms, when do they have pain what activities when does it bother them mm-hmm. um, and you can usually pick that up right. they've all pretty much had x-rays and that's that's the basic standard yeah. treatment you get For an sure. x-ray you see how much cushion's yeah. left between the bones right and if it's starting to diminish that makes it arthritic when it's all gone it's getting to moderate to severe and when the bones wearing away you're into the severe category
1: right yeah. all right. now this, this is maybe a little bit above the topic of the of the show but Sometimes you get, you know, someone who has, you know, what I would otherwise consider to be kind of moderate arthritis, but they have pretty fairly significant pain and dysfunction versus this other person who has fairly severe arthritis and their cartilage really weren't worn away. They're, they're, they're kind of grinding bone on bone and whatnot, and, and yet they seem to be tolerating it better. Any thoughts as to why or how that can happen?
2: Yeah, so a lot of that has to do with their physical fitness uh, because the muscles offload the joint. Right. And so what happens is people get more sore and the knee starts to hurt. They're unable to use it to go upstairs to mm-hmm. walk around. And generally, most of us don't have to exercise every day to stay physically fit because our daily activities keep us physically fit. Sure. You walk upstairs, you get out of bed, you know, you're bending down, you're squatting, you're doing things. Once you get arthritis, you can't really use that joint anymore for those daily activities because it hurts. So you start favoring it and you use the other leg. Yeah. Uh, you get up out of a chair, you use the other leg. You go upstairs one step at a time because it makes that knee feel better. But what happens is without any extra exercise to keep that strength, it's naturally going to start to lose strength, that sort of like violent. you were in a cast for a while, right. right? And so they start to lose strength. And as they lose strength, it puts more strain on that joint and it magnifies the arthritis and the arthritis pain in the same way as gaining weight will magnify the arthritis pain. And these magnifiers of the pain are sometimes what differentiates people. I'll have people coming in on a walker, you know, screaming in pain that have, Still have a little bit of cartilage left and then you have your weekend warrior who's managed to continue to do everything is still laying concrete and right. goes to the gym and they've yeah. worn bone away. It blows you away. It blows you away. Yeah. Yeah. But that fitness gets them to a point. But eventually when all that tread has gone on the tire and you're riding on the rim, doesn't matter how strong you are. It is what you it know, is. you gotta fix it. But it is very important, I think, from an orthopedic standpoint as a joint surgeon to really check people's physical fitness of that joint before we're going to think about operating on it. Because not only do you find that a lot of people get all better just by treating them appropriately, which would be a low impact exercise program, weight management, anti-inflammatories and injections, doing those things, emphasizing, you know, exercise and weight management makes a huge difference and can diminish their pain and where they can delay surgery for a year or two. Right. I call those putting those patients in the bank, Right. So I'm not turning them away, but they're going to come back to see me at some point
0: in the future. Right. It almost seems like we could have a double-edged sword here, where perhaps a patient realizes they need to be a bit more active. Uh, you know, may, you know, maybe make some adjustments in their daily living that forces them to be a bit more active. But it's on this knee that has this advanced arthritis, mm-hmm. and therefore causes more pain. Correct. I mean, do you see that a lot? All the time. Yeah.
2: Uh, and so what happens is the understanding, especially with, with joint replacements, is the pain really comes with weight bearing. When you put right. the weight on that joint and the bones are rubbing together, it hurts. Mm-hmm. And to get the right lower impact activity for the patients. And the simplest thing that I do, because there's a lot of great low impact exercises, mm-hmm. but to get the patient in something they can do in their own house every day for a brief period of time. And I have them get a stationary bike. I have them actually go buy a stationary bike. Mm -hmm. I tell them where to go. This isn't a pitch for Walmart, but I'm gonna throw it in there. (laughs) Walmart, everybody's got a Walmart within 10 minutes of their house. And they have a really good recumbent bike. So it's like a reclining chair with the pedals Mm -hmm. so that if you're an older patient, you have back problems, it's much more comfortable. Plus you don't have to climb on it. There's no weight on the knee. And if they have enough motion in the knee, I get them in an exercise program have them tell them how to do it, get up into an aerobic program so they start getting their heart rate up to what's appropriate for their age and do it every day for 30 minutes. And, and even the weakest patient can get all their strength back in mm-hmm. two months. And it's not that I don't send them to the therapy, but you know, it, they don't do the 30 minutes of exercise that that patient actually needs to get their strength back. I use therapy all the time for joint replacements. It's crucial, but I use them for the things they need them for, for the skill sets, for the walking and all that, the range of motion. But for strength, I try to get the patient to do it. If it's a simple strength problem, yeah. I think I try to engage them, get them a piece of equipment they can work on, and that's what they're going to use postoperatively too. And that's really been transformative. And, and I now get patients coming in and they go, I bought the bike already. Like They already know. <laughs> yeah. They know the that they have that. to go That The word is yeah, out there. If they're yeah. going to want me to do their surgery, they better have their strength. Right. But the patients appreciate it because the more work you do before I cut you, the easier your recovery is going to be in afterwards, there's yeah. no question, hands down, that that's transformative.
1: Now, you had also mentioned uh, something in terms in terms of the surgery, uh, you know, robotics part of the equation. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the, the, the robotics part of the equation, sure. how it may have impacted your practice, when did it become part of the practice and, and, and uh, some of the advantages?
2: Absolutely. Um, so robotics is an integral part of us trying to get to the holy grail of getting a knee that's gonna feel just like your own knee. Right. We've, done a, we've come a long way with joint replacements. And so when we do a joint replacement, there's two things we really worry about. And I know I'm digressing from robotics, but the other two factors are important. This it's is how your we, show, Doc. That's Whatever right. you need to do. Man. <laughs> right, I'm just a guest here. It's how we fix it to the bone right, right? and make sure it's going to last. Uh-huh. And the bearing surface that it's rubbing on, we need that to last. Because right. these have to last. We want them to last 30, 40 years. right? No longer <laughs> we think about five years or 10 years is done. These got to last 30, 40 years. And we've come a long way with that. We used to use cement to like a grout to fix the pieces of bones and it's wonderful. Hold it's super place. strong when right. you put it in. But just like the tiles in your bathroom after 20 or 30 years, they can break down and they could fall off and the grout can deteriorate. Right. And so it's good for the shorter term, but these younger patients, active patients, bigger patients, it's not as good. We now have biologic fixation where the bone actually grows into these implants and fixes them. And that's really been solved the problem of, of the grout and and that the, the interface between the prosthesis and the bone will fail.
1: How, how does the robot play into that?
2: Oh, I'm getting there. You're right. jumping <laughs> a gun. And then and then the, I'm going to get to that part. And sure. then the uh, the other part is the, uh, the bearing surface. And sure. that's still the part we're working on. We have better bearing surfaces, tougher bearing surfaces. We've tried different ones of metals and ceramics and Uh, super strong plastics and right Right. now it's the super strong plastics are the best and that's what we're using but they're not infinite and we have to be careful with those what robotics has done all right doesn't deal necessarily with how we fix it to the bone or the bearing surface it's how we get it to match that patient's native anatomy yeah And so, when we talk about hips and knees, and I did go into knees for a particular reason, because knees are much more difficult to get a good result. And I find the challenge is what attracts me. Sure. The hip is a ball and socket, Mm -hmm. so it rotates around a single point in space. Mm -hmm. So really, if you put the hip in so it's the right length, it's gonna work like your own hip. But Mm -hmm. the knee is very different. It's like a cylinder that rotates on a flat plate. And not only does it rotate like a hinge, but it it rotates around, side to side, side, right? And um, it also rolls back on the plate. So all these motions, very tricky, and they're all controlled by ligaments, some of which we cut, some of which aren't there. Mm -hmm. And so to recreate that anatomy on a patient is very difficult. We can make it look good on an X-ray. But about 20% of people that have a really well-functioning knee replacement will tell you it doesn't feel like their knee. Right. And that's the mystery, right? Mm-hmm. I'll put two knees in one person's, uh, on the same person, and they look exactly the same, they move exactly the same, they go, this one doesn't feel right. And we try to figure out what that is. Right. And that's where robotics comes into play. So robotics gives us a three-dimensional picture of that patient's knee anatomy. And the robotics lets us then position the components for that patient's knee custom to their knee anatomy Mm -hmm. in rotation and where we put it. And before we even cut the bone, when we put the knee through a range of motion before we make any cuts, we can tell what changes that affects on the knee. So when you would do a standard knee with manual instruments like a carpenter would, we have to put the pieces in and then try to balance it and make it right. right. But with robotics, we can move them in space on this 3D model find out what changes and figure out exactly where we want to make our cuts the robot will make the cuts within a half a millimeter yeah we can reproduce their anatomy because everybody's different right if we put everybody in exactly the same we're going to miss the outliers but now we have this range we could customize it to their anatomy and to get to the point with the with the interface the cuts are now so exact when we press fit the pieces, it's an exact fit. Right. So we can really get a much bigger surface area in contact for ingrowth. And so when I used to do like for knee replacements, a smaller amount with ingrowth, and I'd have to cement some of my patients with a lot of osteoporosis. Right. Ninety-eight percent of my patients now are all ingrowth prostheses, because I can preserve the bone. Yeah. And the cuts are so exact that it can support them. It's so it's the it, precision. It's the precision and the exactness, and and the fact that we can preserve all the bone around it to, to support uh, the implant so it's made a big difference and and we've gone all in in our practice with robotics so all of our joint surgeons
0: are hundred percent now on knees and we do a lot of hip replacements with with robotics yeah. we've mentioned on a previous episode it had to be when we were talking about the ACL and just how far you know science has advanced and you know at one point the ACL was considered almost a career-ending injury right. and now we're seeing people back in six to eight months I mean do, just out of curiosity, do you often think back to, like you said, thirty years ago, and just are you amazed by how far, like even your specific practice has come? Oh, it has.
2: I mean, yeah. even sports. I mean, right. the ACLs that I did. I mean, fortunately, when I got into practice, they were starting to do bone-tended bone ACL. <laughs> right. But when I was a when I was an intern, even before I was an intern, when I was a medical student, they were doing trying to sew it back together and right. Yeah all these crazy what's old is new again
1: right like now that's actually becoming something that people are trying to do right right so so doing repairs if it comes off comes directly off the femur a couple of stitches, try to sew it up, try to, sometimes you can wrap it, sometimes you can use some biologics. Hey, this is Here, a joint replacement episode. My bad. Let's go on. Yeah. Let's move forward. You're right, you're right. No, you're yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> Trying
2: to steal your thunder. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. And I, I actually had like five ACL, re- I did all general orthopedics when I came into practice. So I did hand surgery, I did foot surgery, I did ACL reconstructions, et cetera, even though I was fellowship trained in joints and gradually migrated over to that. And as I said, I i I was happily gave up ACL reconstruction because I wasn't as good as them as you are and Dr. Gray is in right, yeah, ACL sure. reconstructions but yeah. i I stuck with the scopes for a while it's a fascinating yeah. procedure but it, it's great to see how that has really changed uh, Unfortunately, even with the best ACL reconstruction you're still going to see failures and sure. things and, and they're going to move on to need to need knee replacements and we do have to take the ACL still that's always a question. The ACL still has to go when we do a knee replacement, and mm-hmm. every time they've tried to make oh. They, I mean, in the manufacturers of knees, an implant that preserves the ACL, they fail f- faster. Right. So there's issues still with the knee we don't understand. We still have to take it out and we can substitute for it with yeah. the, the, the way the prosthesis is designed, but we can't replace it.
1: Any changes in, in, in the approach? Like I so, saw, right, there's been changes, you use robotics, mm-hmm. um, some of the some of the technology, the bearings and whatnot. How about a changes in the approach and whatnot over, over, over your career that you think may have improved? outcomes
2: so um initially that's a great question when i started practice all right, a standard knee replacement would be done and the patient would be in the hospital for a week right and then they'd go to a rehab center for three weeks a week a in week, the rehab, wow. three, a week oh, no. and then three weeks in rehab yeah before they went home Crazy. okay and that was standard that was 1990 yeah and then you know we started uh you know cutting back on the amount of time they'd be in rehab etc and we We got it down to like three days in the hospital and then a week in rehab, but they were still all going to rehab. Right. And then in 2003, I went uh, to a course in Boston and I saw somebody discuss outpatient hip replacements. Okay. And meanwhile, these patients are all staying in the hospital and going to rehab. And I'm here in outpatient and with my sports interest, I'm thinking, this sounds like a great idea. Right. Yeah. We're thinking of building a surgery center, you know, for our sports. Why can't we do joint? Every knee procedure I can think of has gone outpatient, right? Yeah. Miniectomies used to be in the hospital with open minisectomies. Really, that went outpatient. Oh, yeah. You like Sorry. you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Before your time, we used to do open minisectomies and cast them, right? right? And they'd be in the hospital for for a week. Also, ACL reconstructions, the same thing. All this stuff with technology and, and changes in pain management all went to outpatient. So why can't joint replacements, especially in knee, go to outpatient? Right. So I started learning these techniques for muscle sparing approaches called quad sparing, where the kneecap, which sits right in front of the knee, is traditionally right in the way of where you want to put your implant. So you have to figure out a way to move the kneecap to the side to get the implant in. Well, traditionally, we would split the quadriceps tendon and flip the kneecap over and bend the knee. Right. And then you flip it back over when you're done, sew it up, and that's great. It worked great. You can see everything, but now the patient's got a big tendon that we split and sewed back together. They got a bend, and, you know, it hurts. hurts yeah. to do that stuff. So is there a way that you can get the implants in without cutting the tendon? And that was the key. And it has a lot to do with instrumentation and how you, you make room for it by cutting certain areas of the bone first, and it's a more technically challenging procedure to cut the tibia first, and sure. you need smaller instruments. But these were all coming to fruition in in 2003 so i went and tried the hip procedure and it was a disaster it was a bad (laughs) procedure and that another story that that turned out later they came out with a new technique but i decided to try with knees and one of the companies I work for, which a striker, and I'm a striker consultant, so I can, uh, for full disclosure, mm-hmm. uh, they had instruments to do this procedure, and I liked the way the guy was doing it. And I, I got a set of their instruments, and I started figuring out how to do that on my patients, not cut the tendon. Yeah, And that was the beginning of, of trying to get these patients into the outpatient outpatient arena. And that was 2003. And by 2008, you know, I was getting pretty good at it. Sure. We had come up with new pain management protocols yeah. Uh, we were engaging the patient and doing their exercises and, and figuring out all this. Once you're not cutting the tendon, that's where I got real interested in, well, if I'm not cutting the tendon, I better get that muscle strong first so I can get the benefit from it. Right. That's where the exercise program came in. 2008, I did my first outpatient knee replacement. And I was one of the early guys. Yeah, probably a handful of 10 in the US, mm-hmm. I started doing outpatient in 2008. But now, as we got better technology and we've learned that being home is the safest place for you, the, really, the, we're now 50% of our patients are, are going home. They're not even. We're doing them in outpatient centers. Uh, 98% of my patients are home within 23 hours. If they stay over in the hospital, they go home the next day. Yeah. Otherwise, they go home the same day. And patients love it, right? True. If you get them physically fit enough, you're better off eating your own food and sleeping in your own bed and not being with all the sick people. Right. And unfortunately, that's what COVID taught us: is that hospitals 100%, are really for, yeah. hospitals are for sick people. Right. They're not for the healthy mm-hmm. and joint replacement patients are generally healthy. And so now you have patients asking,
0: do I have to be in the hospital? Right. And that's really pushed the, uh, push the envelope and let's get patients out. I, I don't mean this in any way to be an insult, but when I hear you say the work, uh, the, the years, 2003, 2008, it How old are you? It, I'm, I'm 38, <laughs> but it, that doesn't seem that long ago to me, no. you yeah. know, like it, like these trends have been, in my opinion, fairly recent. They have. You know
2: outpatient joint replacement was still like i was an outlier in 2008 and yes. um we had a spot on uh, on the news they had i think uh, channel six news from philadelphia came in and did a spot on it and i remember jim gardner going why would you want to go home? <laughs> <laughs> right. And I, I still Reasonable look at my wife question. every time he's on the news. I go, do you believe what that guy said yeah. after my spot? So um, because now everybody's trying to go home, right? So we were just a little bit ahead of the curve. But, the, yeah. you know, that's, that's the price you pay yeah. from, from being out in the lead but it really has made a difference. Robotics has been a big help with right. that in being able to move everything to the outpatient center.
1: For sure. Yeah. I would also think with robotics that because you're sort of planning the surgery before you even make the first cut and because of the precision, it actually allows you to do the surgery a little more easily, even with kind of this quad sparing technique. right? Correct. Like you can kind of slide up underneath. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. There's the, the robot, knows where the bones are so it's very protective so when we were cutting with a regular saw we had to have the knee bent and we're cutting right through the bone and you can't see the back of the bone and most of us in orthopedics know there's a lot of important things behind the bone like your blood vessels and your nerves and you have to be really have a good feel for where you are and not going too far but robotics prevents that it just stops the saw dead right so it has a lot of safety features and also it lets us cut the knee now mm-hmm. without having to bend it back, cut an extension. And it, and it, it uh, made the procedure simpler. So what, the term I like to use is it democratizes the procedure, meaning it's a challenging procedure to do manually. Yeah. But with robotics, you can teach it to surgeons who don't do 600 knees a year. Right. If you do 60 knees a year or even 20 knees a year, yeah. you can do these 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 Mm -hmm. techniques that require a lot more skill because the robot really can help. It
1: was kind of a perfect marriage, a perfect storm of timing, like in that, you know, changing over from, you know, quad sparing, but at the same time, robotics coming into play. Correct. Yeah, it worked out out very well.
2: Yeah, and it gets people back to where they want to be. Right. And and it rounds us all the way back to how do we get them back to sports? Right. right? Yeah.
1: For sure. (laughs) So actually, I saw, I'm reading, you know, um, I think with JBJS, the journal uh, Bone and Joint Surgery, which is one of the big orthopedic journals, Uh, the British version of it, I don't know, maybe a year ago, two years ago, I remember reading an article on the level of 90% retention for knees, a little lower for hips, but 90% retention at 20 years, which to me was, was actually like eye-opening, a little surprising. Yeah, yeah. And I'm an orthopedic surgeon, right? Traditionally, it was 10 years, 15 years, but now we're looking at 90% retention right. at That's 20 right. years.
2: So this, the, the, the because the designs have gotten better, mm-hmm. and, that, and a lot of what you're talking about is not what we call biologic fixation. It's with cement you're getting 20, 30 years. So traditionally with cement what we tell patients is that you know you should expect ninety five percent of needs to still be good after fifteen years yeah. and then it's one percent every year after. So it, at twenty five years there's an eighty five percent and at thirty five years there's a seventy five percent. But because we haven't been doing this biologic fixation for 35 years.
1: It remains to be seen.
2: Right, so the early results show like 97% survivorship at 10 years for the biologic fixation. So
1: then what does that mean for the athlete who wants we to get back to sports? Yes, exactly, <laughs> so we get
2: back to that. So now we have really, we, we kind of have solved the fixation problem. Right. Because the, the issue with the athlete getting back to sports is that you know what can repair itself right so now with biologic fixation you don't have to worry about the grout breaking down it's the bearing surface right that that and what's happening is is the more active we are we're we're wearing some of the plastic away even as no matter how strong it is it wears away millimeters or micromillimeters at a time and our body is able to dispose of that we have a synovial lining to our joints and it has the ability to take small amounts of this debris and actually, you know, engulf them and get rid of them and sort of clear them out. Right. But there's a finite amount that they can clear. So, as we get more active and become, you know, yeah. higher impact or do a lot more activities and we start shedding more and more plastic, you can overwhelm that system. And instead of engulfing and digesting these pieces of plastic, they cause the cells actually to burst and die. Right. And then they release all their enzymes yeah. onto the bone and it starts to wear away the bone. And, and it can cause what we call osteolysis and problems with wear. And so excessive plastic wear can do that. And so that I think is the issue with the higher impact activity. So I counsel my patients to avoid them repetitively. Yes, you can run, and this is for your recreational athletes. Sure. Yes, you can run the first base. You can run with kids and grandkids. You can run playing soccer, a pickup game, right. but you shouldn't run a marathon. The training, the amount of plastic you're going to shed doing that. You can exercise in the gym. You can do, you know, uh, leg extensions, leg curls, elliptical machine, bike, cycle. You can go crazy on that, Yeah, but don't do squats and leg presses and wall sits because what that does is puts a lot of force on the plastic and you worry about breakage and wear and things like that, just for preservation.
1: What about like skiing, tennis, maybe golf?
2: So those golf and tennis and skiing is a low impact. I people do elliptical and I, so people love it. You can go back to uh, you know skiing all you want. Right. Uh, the basic rule is don't fall. Right, you can break your own regular knee, right? right. But you know right. if your knee, if you fall and you fracture, whatever, you're probably going to fracture your own knee. Right. It's not the implant causing that problem. Right.
1: But it's a harder problem to fix. It's a
2: harder problem to fix, unfortunately, yes, but it is fixable still. Sure. So I do let people go back to ski and bike and cycle and return almost all their activities. The one place we're really still stuck is is the professional athlete. I don't think we're close enough now with any sort of bearing surface. Yeah. That can stand the sheer forces of a, you know, 300 pound lineman, you know, running, <laughs> running after a quarterback, you know, right. pounding that knee, or all the work they have to do and all the training that they have to do to stay at that level to be a professional athlete, and except if you're a cycler, maybe. Right, yeah, we you know, talked about sport.
1: Floyd Landis possibly. Correct, maybe, yeah, yeah. yeah,
2: you could do that. So, and and you look, but things have changed. You know, We weren't even talking about doing that years ago. We used to be, you couldn't even kneel. Right. You know, now you can do all these things and return to it. So, you know, 20 years from now, we may have a bearing surface or an implant or figure out some way to do it that, that people might be returning to, to activities like that. I don't think it's out of the question that it will ever happen. Yeah, It's sure. just with today's technology, yeah. it's probably, you're not looking at it in my career lifetime,
0: meaning I've been here 30, 33 years. So yeah. I can't believe it wouldn't happen when we just talk about 15 years ago, we were spending three weeks in the hospital uh, following, you you know what I mean? So when you say 20 years, I'm like, ah, probably like 10, realistically, Yeah, you know?
2: I don't think you're far off. I think we might see it where people can return to professional sports. I think we have to solve the ligament problem, the ACL issue. Mm -hmm. The knee may not be the first joint we get back into it may be a hip we get yeah. back right. before we get a knee back because the knee's a little more complicated. But sure. I
0: agree with you. I think it's gonna happen. Yeah. Somebody's gonna figure it out. We've had multiple episodes, uh, now that we're really kind of focusing on the professional athlete. Joel Embiid has been a topic of discussion. Right. We just did Odell Beckham that, mm-hmm. you know, tours I ACL toured. for yeah. the second time. Not to put you on the spot, but these these athletes that are having multiple knee problems. Do you foresee them needing a replacement down the line? Yeah, there's
2: no question, unfortunately. And you see that with a lot of the football uh, athletes that they're, most of them are getting joint replacements early on in their yeah. 50s and 60s and mm-hmm. occasionally in their 40s. We mentioned before the show started, Joe Namath, and I'm, I'm a Jets fan, full disclosure, <laughs> yeah. but that's because my dad made me that way growing up. <laughs> and I okay. I did not have it's any okay. choice in that <laughs> matter, sure. and, and I'm passionate about it. Um, but he has knees fixed when he was 47, right? He had yeah. four ACL reconstructions from right. college on, and, and they were not like you guys do today, right? right? They were not anything you knew were gonna was gonna work. Mm-hmm, I don't sure. even know what was holding his knees together. Yeah. So, so you see that, you know, a lot uh, with the athletes uh, from, from what's happening with that. And I think that's going to continue, especially yeah. they're getting bigger, yeah. they're getting faster, mass times velocity, right? right. just these, you know, when I look at what the linebackers were when I was growing up, you know, they were, and the linemen, they were 220 to 240. That was big. Now they're yeah. 300, 340, they're yeah. running four seven forties or something that, that guy's a running back nowadays yeah you know, it's crazy right, and right. the forces on these joints I mean and as a Jets fan Mekhi Beckton, uh, you know he dislocated his patella and they were saying oh he's going to be back in four to six weeks and I'm going the guy's 380 pounds I go do you know what kind of force went through that that's right. like a motor vehicle accident that occurred right there and sure yeah. enough he didn't return the whole season yeah. I mean even even the trainers at that point didn't understand, yeah. you know, what went on with that guy's knee just from dislocating his patella because of the force on that from his size. Right. Right? And so th- those things as these guys get bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger, yeah.
0: The injuries are getting larger and larger. Of course. Yeah. Your thoughts on when you see these athletes down the road, you know, well past the prime of their career? does it make you like at all roll your eyes at their drive or even the orthopedic surgeon? Um, And I have two specific examples. One of my closest friends uh, that I met through working in baseball, uh, he played with us from the 2008 season through 2013. So that's six seasons. He had five medial meniscus repairs. Okay. Uh, It actually got to- Repairs or meniscectomies? Repairs. Okay. And it got to a point where by the third one, the surgeons told him we're gonna remove it and you'll never have to deal with this tear again because it'll just be bone on bone. Right. Uh, it got to a point where- um, Hopefully
1: he had some cartilage in there too. Yeah, but, all right.
0: I, I'm, trying, I, I'm trying not to say his name, but yeah. it got to a point where I knew this gentleman would be living uh, at my house for a few months following the season because he mm-hmm. spent like two three months before we send him home. Um, I mean, does that just kind of make you question them? Right.
2: So, you know, the, the, trying to get people back, it is a livelihood, yeah. right? So, right. And then when you got millions of dollars in it, there's plenty of people who took the money and just mm-hmm. retire and that's yeah. fine. And you have to make that life choice, mm-hmm. but it's, it's tough. The, 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 it gets really dicey when you get to the younger athletes, yeah. the kids. And, you know, I've yeah. seen that. And sometimes the parents trying to say, well, you got to get my kid back to play. He's got to right. be in there for, and really and sometimes decisions. you become the parent as right. an orthopedic surgeon. And I'm sure you've been there too. Yeah. You go, look, Absolutely. this is, he's not going to prefer, he's not going pro. I right. mean, you're going to you're going to destroy his knee or his leg, you know, he needs time to heal. Right. You know? And so sometimes we have to step in and do that. It is a questionable mm-hmm. when they're when they really getting paid and that's their livelihood mm-hmm. and they're making a choice on that. Sure. And then we do have ways out in the future with joint replacements. Mm-hmm. Is it really a bad choice or is it unethical to do that? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. It's clearer with kids when we have to step in a little bit as orthopedists. Protecting the athlete
1: from himself or or potentially, you know, in in a way from his parents. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So that's a a good point. I don't know what I would do if it Mm -hmm. was me, if I was that good. Yeah. And I had that opportunity and I could go pro and then get that three years in. Yeah. And if I was going to make, you know, 15 million dollars right i'd probably go for it yeah you know and then pay the price whatever it was down the line but if i ended up making nothing and it destroyed (laughs) my knee you know i made a bad choice so so Uh, and and i don't know how you draw that line it's it's a it's a great point you know as as technology and and orthopedics gets better we're able to keep people in the game more right you know and, and are we doing the right thing and sometimes we are and
0: sometimes we aren't I speak to this guy frequently, and you know he actually listens to our show, um, so he knows that I'm talking about him now. But uh, you know he, he's uh, he's out there, and you know I. It's like, how are you feeling day to day? And it's like, well, I mean, I know every I, I know every day when it's going to rain, and it hurts for the first few hours when I'm awake. But he's somehow he's probably going to turn 40 here soon, but. He's like, I. It's probably a matter of days before I'm probably scheduling my, you know, my replacement. Yeah. You oh, know, and I, and I feel terrible nice. for him because, unfortunately for him, he he didn't get where he wanted to be. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? And but man, five, just. Well, I'm gonna give it one more shot. Yeah. Now I'm getting closer, but I'm gonna do it one more time. You know, and I think towards the end of his career, you know, he was really just a a pinch hitter, because man, he could still hit the ball over the wall. Yeah. there was no question about it, but. If, if he had to do anything but jog around the bases, it was painful. The good news is is that now you can do
2: a knee and, you know, it can last 30 years right. on mm-hmm. him. And yeah. he can return to, like, a lot of recreational activities. Right. Whereas 25, 30 years ago, you gave him a knee, will last five years. Right. Right. And so That's so, crazy. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Because of the, the, the fixation and things. And sure. The, and, and the prostheses weren't as good. The plastics weren't as good. And they right. just younger. The, re- the knee replacement results on patients under 50 was abysmal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but not anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. Yeah. You had talked about a little bit about the hip. I mean, yeah. similar restrictions. So the hip has some restrictions mm-hmm. because um, the, the hip can pop out of the socket. Mm-hmm. Uh, dislocation can mm-hmm. occur. So and, we have and to. full have...
1: disclosure, you're primarily knee surgeon. Correct. Correct.
2: I, sure. I did hips and knees. I, I stopped doing um, hip replacement in 2014 because I wanted to focus on knees. Sure. Um, and um, and I kind of like them better. Um, <laughs> so. Um, but uh, yes, I have fairly good knowledge of, of hips. I just don't do them anymore. Understood. Yeah. Um, and um, and the big issue with hips really is is a dislocation. Is is um, you know if you twist that hip enough, it unfortunately, it can pop out of the socket. And, right. and ways to avoid that is to put a bigger ball in the hip. Right. Like the size of our ball instead of a smaller one, but right. the bigger the ball, the less liner you have, and that creates some problems with how long the liner is going to last. So surface area. Exactly. Work, yeah. So again, you have some of the same uh, restrictions. People have tried different things. They put metal and metal rather than plastic. And that was a bad thing. So still the bearing surface with a hip is the same issue as the bearing surface. I'm the plastic inserts. We are somewhat limited in what it can, what it can handle. Yeah but recreational activities that you're going to want to do you know from age 50 on it should be fine for right okay.
1: and we talked a little bit about this as we were getting warmed up um but with like the Bo jackson situation right mm-hmm. like like you know i guess you know, at this point uh, there have been uh, one or two athletes who have gotten back to a pretty high level right um, professionally but m- more so with, with 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 the hip replacement mm-hmm.
2: So he did go back. I remember that. Mm -hmm. So football, he could never go back to because he dislocated his hip. And so Mm -hmm. the risk of popping your hip out of the socket with a joint replacement is much higher than his own hip, which he already dislocated. So he was smart enough not to go back. He played pro baseball, but running, sliding in the bases. He kind of disappeared after two years. (laughs) He never got back to the level that he was at. Right. Right. And I assume—I don't know this for a fact—that he probably had a revise. It probably failed, right. which is why he quit. Mm-hmm. And then uh, had a revise, and then just gave up on the sports. Yeah. So um, I don't know that for a fact. So nobody should quote <laughs> me or, yeah. or call these two gentlemen here with complaints.
1: That 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 guy was like pro- probably mm-hmm. I don't know the best athlete, and I was I was. I was young at that point in time, but maybe the best athlete I've ever seen. He could, like the whole, you know, bonos, you know, he could do anything. It was was unbelievable. So, you know, I guess if somebody, and, and even at that time, someone's gonna get back to it, that's the right guy. But even he couldn't sustain it. He couldn't do it, right, he couldn't
2: do it. And so, and I don't think anybody's really tried. I mean, like we talked about it, cycling, you probably could get back to it at an extremely high level. Yeah, I'm pretty
1: certain Floyd Landis, who followed uh, Lance Johnson um, uh, did, did get, was doing it on a hip replacement. I know he got a hit replacement. I'm pretty sure it was before he won the tour, right. not after.
2: Right. Whether you could do it with skiing or uh, not, that would be interesting too. Snowboarding, right. that kind of thing. Uh, you probably could. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but most of these guys are, and ladies are so young that they don't have joint replacement problems anyway uh, Right. at that point. you know. So you have to be talking about athletes in their 30s and... In 40s, going back, True. And, and certainly we've seen plenty of ACL reconstructions get back to competitive. Right, right. It's, it's not unheard of with with better techniques that we're going to get, you know, some um, you know, joint um, replacement patients back at some point in the future.
1: I, I, I have to imagine it's going to happen. Probably not too far down the road. I think the big point is the one that you just made. Right? Like that, typically the guy that's getting getting the joint replaced. Usually is further along in their career than mm-hmm. the guy who tears his ACL, right. and, and that also impacts his ability to get back.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, wow. so yeah, not a lot of 30, 40 year
0: forty-year-olds are going to be competing at that level.
2: Right. Yeah.
0: right. Yeah. I found everything that we discussed tonight absolutely fascinating, and and maybe because full disclosure, it's definitely outside of you know what I typically deal with in athletics, but I, I think we need to have more of these topics. Right. Right. Th- this was fascinating. I love it. Doc, we can't thank you enough for joining no, it was us great. tonight. No, it's great. I really enjoyed it. I have so much, thanks so much for having me here. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. It's a pleasure. Before we go ahead and close out our tab for tonight, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors, Reconstructive Orthopedics, with our eight locations and focused on you approach, covering all of your orthopedic needs. The Energy Lab, the region's premier sports performance destination. Neck of the Woods Brewing Company, of course, for hosting us each and every week. Brian doing an amazing job behind the bar. Come down and check them out. And as always, our good friends at Timber Real Productions. Thanks a lot for tuning in and we'll catch you guys next time.